Well, with our Bibles staying open, I uh, welcome you again to our series, Wind Chasers and Worshippers, and remind you that uh, there was, there's a number that's going to be on the wall that you can text questions to, uh, and we encourage you to do it as soon as the questions come to you, so that we don't have 15 of them come at the last minute like we did last time. Uh, and it gives uh, Alex a little bit of time to, to process those, those questions. And questions we don't get to uh, today, we will either work into other messages or we'll try to answer it in one of the other mornings. Uh, let me pray. Dear, dear God in heaven, uh, give, us, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to surrender to and hope in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the, name, the name of uh, today's message is The Trouble with Whining. Why Ning. W-H-Y Ning. To go back in history a little bit, not really history, to go back in mythology just a little bit, I have read about a man in ancient Greek mythology. His, his name was Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus was punished by the gods for all of eternity for something we don't know that he did wrong, but his punishment was that he was forced to roll a large boulder up a hill only to have it roll back down the hill so that he would have to roll it up the hill, only to have it roll back down the hill, ad infinitum, forever. This was his sentence, an exercise in futility, an exercise in meaninglessness. What most people don't realize is that Sisyphus later moved to Philadelphia. And the gods fated that he would become the first Philadelphia sports fan. <laughs> I lost you there. Sorry. I, I could, I'm just sitting in my study and it's just futility. Albert Camus, the 20th century skeptic, secularist, unbeliever, seized on the Sisyphus myth as a perfect metaphor for the human condition. That we as human beings are locked into an endless cycle of futility. Meaningless, meaningless. Solomon, way back in the day, cried out at the, book of Ecclesi at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, everything seems pointless. Everything seems futile. And every one of us in this room has experienced at least moments in which we have felt that. Moments of quietness, moments of re realness, moments of sensitivity and reflection when we have felt the mix of pain, the mix of confusion, the mix of sadness and even anger at what seems to be the random 
arbitrary senselessness of human life. We've all, we've all been there. We have teenagers, I'm sure, right in this room this morning, afternoon, who have at different points fallen into depression, fallen into rage, fallen into rebellion, because as they're looking at life, it just doesn't make any sense. And maybe they're sitting around playing their video games and down deep, deep, deep inside they're, they're asking, isn't there anything more than this? Is this as good as it gets? If you've ever said, if only I had this, then I would be happy only then to receive that and find yourself still unhappy. If you've ever seen injustice not made right, if you've ever seen a teen inexcusably shot down by a cop, or if you've ever seen a heroic man or woman in blue getting gunned down in the line of duty, if you've ever seen a video of a sadly disabled man cruelly tortured by young people, if you've ever seen poverty and oppression, if your father or mother has died while you were still young, if you love Jesus and yet feel so desperately alone, if you've heard the cry of a dying child, if you've seen the young mom who is now the young widow, if you have seen the wicked gain power, if you have seen the unborn slaughtered, if you have seen the racists hate, if you have heard the sound of guns in your neighborhood, if you have seen the evil prosper and the righteous suffer, if you have seen the wicked have happy and successful families while righteous people have sad and broken families, if you've ever read Anne Frank's diary, if you've ever read Elie Wiesel's Night, then you've had times. You have had times when you have thought meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. Vanity and vanity, it's all vanity. Oh, we need the message of Ecclesiastes, this strange, confusing book. Somebody asked in one of the questions last week, why is this book in the Bible? You know, written by a man who was so confused. Well, the answer is this. God wanted to give us a real life example of a man who looked for joy in all the wrong places so that you and I would look for joy in all the right places. He gave, God gave us this book because as we said last week, even if in the quest for significance, we could try everything under heaven there is to try. We would never find our meaning here. For our maker is our meaning. Our maker is our meaning. The point of Ecclesiastes is that if you search for meaning under the sun... That is to say, if you don't look above the sun into God's realm, if you search for meaning under the sun, which is to say, if you are an atheist who doesn't believe in God, or an agnostic who thinks that you can't know if there is a God, or a secularist who maybe believes in God, but doesn't think God has anything to do with life here and now in this world, if you are any of those, you will never find ultimate and lasting meaning. It's not possible. Oh, you'll find temporary meaning. You'll find temporary joy. You'll find things that are meaningful. But that quest, that searching, that longing for that which is full of meaning and forever meaningful 
you will never find under the sun. There's, there's one author who, who puts it like this as she is describing trying to find meaning for yourself in this life. She writes, that's, that's like leaping off a precipice and trying to knit yourself a parachute on the way down. That's like jumping off a cliff and trying somehow to knit a parachute on the way down. Human beings are knitting parachutes while in a free fall. This is the nature of life in a broken world. And there's all kinds of parachute knitting people in our world, all pursuing happiness in their own different ways. And in the course of this series, we're going to look at a number of those, those parachutes that people are knitting, even as they're in a free fall, to their own destruction. So today, let's look quickly at one of these parachutes. I'm calling it the geek and the guru approach to life. The geek and the guru approach to life. These are those who put their hope of happiness in knowledge and wisdom, in education and philosophy, in information and in answers, in knowing the what of life and the whys of life. There are geeks accumulating all kinds of information, education, degrees, and trivia. And there are gurus trying to discern in Yoda-like fashion wisdom and meaning and significance in life. Solomon, being so very brilliant and at a certain level so very wise, was the ultimate geek and guru. And yet he says that knowledge and wisdom are futile. Look, look at chapter 1 and verse 16. Chapter 1 and verse 16. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon's not dissing education here or knowledge. Remember where Solomon is coming from. He's under the sun, right? His worldview does not include God. So what Solomon is talking about here is a pursuit of knowledge and a pursuit of wisdom that does not include the knowledge of God and a pursuit of facts and information and answers that in such a way that they, those facts and information do not relate to God, they're just there. And Solomon is saying that it doesn't make you happy just to know. Information and answers will not satisfy you. It is wind chasing. And in Ecclesiastes, he gives us four reasons for this. Let me run through these quickly. Reason number one, why the geek and guru approach to life doesn't work is this, there is always more to learn. There is always more to learn. In chapter 12 and verse 12, we read, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, 
and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Books are written endlessly. Solomon said that, what, 3,000 years ago. What would he say today? Do do you realize in this country alone, there are one million new books published every year and 13 million books republished. That's 14 million books you've got to digest, folks. That's a lot of ideas. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of information. And in case it's not enough to keep you occupied, there are 152 million blog sites in the world. Go find your joy. Yeah. You, there, there's just... There's just no way to keep up with it. And if that wasn't bad enough, they say that the, on average, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. So, so what we know right now as human beings, February of 2018, we will know twice that much. IBM says that when the full effect of the internet plays out to the full, in all the way that we learn based on what others learn and all of that, knowledge, human knowledge, will be doubling every 12 hours. If happiness is to be found in knowledge, then happiness is going to be forever elusive. There's too much to learn. And if learning is the key to happiness, we will always be haunted by the knowledge that there is way more that we don't know than that we know. And to make it even worse, we'll be irked by the fact that there are other people who know more than us. There's there's Ken Jennings. That name familiar to any of you? Ken Jennings won 74 consecutive games of Jeopardy. Over $3 million. It is safe to say that he probably knows more trivia than any other human being on the planet and probably all of us in this room multiplied by a thousand altogether he knows. IBM hired Jennings to play the game of Jeopardy against their supercomputer Watson. Jennings lost. And later on, he describes the aftermath of that loss as a feeling of being, quote, an obsolete know-it-all. I felt like an obsolete know-it-all. If you put your happiness in knowledge, it'll fail you because someone or something will always know more and that will leave you feeling at least a bit inferior, at least a little bit behind, at least a little bit dated, at least a little bit obsolete. There's always more to learn. Second reason, the more you learn, the more you lament. The more you know, the more you weep. Chapter 1 and verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know, the more you grieve. There's a reason why humans have been saying for 
generations, ignorance is bliss. Do you realize how much happier we would all be if we would stop watching the news and reading the headlines? The more you know, the more you lament. The more you know, the greater your sorrow. Third reason, no matter how much you learn, bad stuff is still going to happen to you. And you're going to die just like everyone else. Isn't this an upbeat message? <laughs> we'll get there. We just got to face the truth. We got to face it head on. We, you know, there's no point in pretending here, folks. A lot of people pretending out there. Let's get real here. Let's, let's think about the things, the parachutes that people are knitting while they're in a free fall. Let's, let's think about this. No matter how much you learn, bad stuff is still going to happen to you and you're going to die like everyone else. That has already been read for us through the scripture reading this morning in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, where the author says, yes, there, there is something to be gained by wisdom and knowledge. I mean, it is better to, to have some intelligence than to be totally ignorant. It, it, you know, it, it'll, it'll do something for you in your life. But at the end of the day, he says, at the end of the day, I perceive that the same event happens to all of us. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? What's the point of the knowledge? I said in my heart that this is vanity. For as of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under heaven or under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. You know how many millions and billions of really super intelligent human beings there have been? How many of them can you name? How many of you did know the name Ken Jennings? Not even a quarter of you. And yet, what, six, eight years ago, 10 years ago tops, I forget when he played the game, just about every American knew the name. Forgotten. Forgotten. So what's the point? No matter how smart you are, bad stuff still happens. Death still happens. You'll be forgotten like everyone else. Fourth reason, there are some things you can never learn. There are some things you can never learn. In the text that was read in chapter 8, in verse 16, Solomon says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done under earth, on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under heaven. How much 
Man may toil in seeking, seeking to find out, figure it out. He will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What's Solomon saying? He is saying that if you're in the pursuit of why, the reason, the scheme, the understanding, the explanation for what goes on on this planet, if you want answers for your why questions, you're not going to get them. You're not going to find them. You cannot find it out. You cannot figure it out. As he says in chapter 7, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and deep, very deep, very deep. Who can find it? Who can find it? You You know where he's coming from? How many times have you asked why questions? And the cosmos has been silent in the response. How many times have you wondered why? Why? Why does the hurricane Irene blaze a path of destruction that that takes down hundreds of homes, including the homes of good people, and then on the doorstep of the town scoundrel, take a right turn and not even lift a shingle from his roof. Why does one baby, why is one born so very ill and the other so very healthy? Why, why, why? You ask the questions. You want to know how many times I've asked those questions? I can't find the answers. You see, we, we humans, we... We like life to be done in equations. We, we like this plus this equals that. Um, we like there to be fixed rules. We like there to be predictable outcomes. Um, just doesn't work that way. We breathe a sigh of relief when the grammar teachers, teacher teaches us I before E except after C. And then we throw our hands up in dismay when we come to the word neighbor. (laughs) Or Or we come to the word science or ancient or reindeer. The rules go out the window. Sometimes it feels like the universe is just refusing to play by the rules. There's nothing predictable about it. Often it feels like there's nothing fair about it. And so we ask, why? But the trouble with whining is that you don't get the answers. And if your happiness and your meaning and your purpose in life is dependent on getting the answers, then my friend, you will never be happy. You will never be content. You will never have any real joy. The trouble with whining is not that there are no answers, but that there are no real and ultimate answers given. It's a distinction we have to make. Folks, the Bible teaches us that God has the answers, but God keeps secrets. God doesn't clue us in. God is not a cosmic answer man. 
who calls us up and says, hey, let's get together for coffee and I'll clue you in. doesn't work that way. And so God has his secrets. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are secret things. Say, well, why would God keep secrets? Can I, can I suggest at least one answer? Because we couldn't understand if he gave the reasons. See, that's the problem. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Galen and I went to see... Uh, the movie Hidden Figures. What a wonderful, wonderful movie. Wonderful movie. It made me feel like an utter dummy. <laughs> you know, like futility. Yeah. You know, so you got, you got um, uh, uh, Catherine, I'm forgetting her last, uh, Catherine Johnson, um, this brilliant uh, NASA mathematician and physicist who standing at a chalkboard, you, if you've seen the movie, you just, you know what I'm saying, just start, you know, just writing, a, this whole chalkboard is just filled with equations and just coming out of her brain through her hand, through that piece, and then she steps back and, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> you know, others look on, yeah, yeah, that'll work. And, and, and I look on, I say, what in the world? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Catherine Johnson could sit down with me for the next 15 years and explain it to me. But her thoughts are not my thoughts, and her ways are not my ways. It isn't going to work. It isn't going to work. Here's an here's a, here's a equation for you. We're going to put it up for you. Physicist, according to physicists, this is true. F equals DP backslash DT dash D, left parentheses, MV, right parentheses, backslash DT dot. Apparently, that's true. <laughs> I don't have a clue. Never did, never will. I don't care. I don't care. Um, their ways are not my ways. Their thoughts are not my thoughts. But here's the deal, folks. You could explain that to an infant more easily than you could explain God's mind to us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of Knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Folks, the problem is not that God wants to keep secrets. The problem is we wouldn't understand if he told us. God is thinking about intergalactic forces of nature. He is working out the ends for which he has made the entire cosmos. And you and I wonder about what socks we're going to put on in the morning. What we're going to eat for dinner. God is weaving together untold trillions, trillions, trillions of cosmic strands of all that happens to everyone 
everything, everywhere, weaving them all into a tapestry that will take us forever to behold and to enjoy. And in the meantime, you and I are coloring between the lines and learning our ABCs and our one, two, threes. He doesn't tell us the secrets, not because he's a God who likes to keep secrets. It's because he's a God who loves us to know that we couldn't handle them. And we can't process them. So the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and secret things is ultimately a pursuit of vanity and futility. But a life in which we see above the sun and know that there is a God there who has made it all and ordained it all and orchestrated it all, who is infinite in wisdom and in knowledge, such capacity that he is able to create the cosmos in all of its complexity, in all of its design, in all of its wonder, in all of its beauty. There's a God out there who has done all of this. His mind, his heart is big enough and wise enough and smart enough and powerful enough to do it all is a God who can be trusted. And I don't need the answers. I don't need the answers. Meaning comes when we're able somehow to look above the sun and see God. The old poet put it like this. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The, blood, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Here is a God worth trusting. Here is a source of ultimate meaning and comfort and peace and joy. Some of you have been thinking as we started this series, wow, I thought your title, your name of your church was Risen Hope. Risen Hope. Sinking Despair. You got the wrong church. This is the Sinking Despair Church here. No, it is Risen Hope. It is hope that emerges from the ashes of our futility and our emptiness. It is a hope that surfaces um, and is restored because there was one whose name is Jesus who loved us so much that he stepped into our world of futility and meaningless. And in the words of Peter the Apostle has ransomed us from our futile way of life. 
A life given over to sin and self and all the things that don't last and don't matter. And he paid the price for our sin. He redeemed us. And by his spirit now comes into our life and ever so gently but really and truly he lifts our eyes so they go above the sun. And we see what we couldn't see before and trust the one we didn't know to trust before and rest in the one in whom there is ultimate and eternal rest. And there we are glad. There we are glad. It still may be dark outside, but we're able to rest in the dark because we know the one who is the light. Now begins the question and answer part of our service. Will you be distinguishing between the depression of vanity and mental illness? Uh, That's a really, really, really important question. Um, There is um, the, the vanity that Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes are addressing is a self-imposed meaninglessness and depression that comes as a result of an active pursuit of life and meaning and happiness without God. Very different from the heartbreaking, heart-wrenching experience of many who for physical reasons, for chemical reasons, uh, battle with depression, battle with uh, feelings of suicidal feelings, feelings of discouragement, feelings of meaninglessness. The two very different things, two very different things. Solomon and Ecclesiastes are getting at her after what amount to sinful, idolatrous pursuits of meaning apart from God. Now, if you're here this afternoon and, and your heart is set toward God, you're looking for God, you want God, you're seeking God, and you're still battling with depression and discouragement, then we encourage you again. I think I said this last week, but let me say it again. Um, Find help. Let us try to help you or point you in direction of help. Find encouragement. Find fellowship. Perhaps find a medical doctor. Find somebody who can help you try to trace through what might be the physical or other causes of your depression. Uh, two very different things that need to be, need to be kept uh, distinguished. I hope that helps. Next question. And this will have to be the last. I'm sorry. The the morning is filled with other things. Is it wrong to cry, why me, when we are desperate and in pain, if the question is asked Mm -hmm. uh, with a good and just God in mind? Yeah. Again, a wonderful question. Is it it wrong to to say, why me, Out out of grief, out of pain? Can't be wrong. Jesus did it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus never had a sinful, doubting, unbelieving moment in his whole existence. 
what was happening there on the cross, what was happening there in the, in the, in the depths of his grief, in the depths of his loneliness. He was, he was, he was crying out a, a, a why of sorrow, a why of grief, a, a why of tears, not a why of doubt or accusation. And that, I think, is the distinction that we must make. The, the psalmist often say, why? And how long? How long, O Lord? How long? Nothing wrong with those questions so long as they don't have a shaking fist attached to them. So long as they are the humble cries of a broken heart, not the angry cries of an indignant, I'm mad at God heart. Now, there will be moments when you're tempted toward the mad at God. And know this, know this, that in your deep grief, in your profound pain, I want to say this carefully, but I'll say it anyway, I'll say it. God can handle even your anger. Um, Better to be authentic with God than phony. Uh, But you don't want to stay there. You don't want to stay there. And you're going to have to make peace with not having an answer to the why. And you're going to need to realize there is, there is a reason giver who one day will sit down with you in eternity and say, here's why. Here's why. Here's all that I did through you and for others because of that. That's who God is. He is a father who does not afflict us willingly or eagerly. Uh, the afflictions come because, well, for whatever his purposes and reasons and our good, they're needed. Uh, so let's trust in him. Uh, all right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us grace to, um, to rest in a God can be trusted. Give peace to everyone here. Give faith and hope to each one here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anything we need to... Okay. Remember the guest reception, if there are any who want to partake, participate in that. And the season's um, meeting is Immediately immediately after here as well. So if you're 55 and over... Uh, You can hang around for that and see Bill and Becky Davis.